Luke 1, 39 to 45. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child who you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? I thought you'd do some leaping there. As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. Thanks, Billy. Uh, if you don't know Billy, she's one of the most exceedingly wonderful human beings on the planet, so please talk to her when you're grabbing coffee. Um, just an incredible person. Uh, also, Michael just staring deep into my soul the entire time that was happening. Highlight. Uh, we, we are talking about Luke. Um, and I want to give a little bit of context before I go forward about why we're even here. Uh, when we had the preaching meeting about this, the question to Jim and Rachel, because the preaching team is just largely a group of, you know, rowdy, rebellious, you know, questioners who just throw questions at Jim and Rachel, as we do, we kept saying, why now, right? We're going we're gonna to read the story of Christmas in September. This is odd. And their response was so incredible. It, it has lived rent-free in my brain uh, for the months since then. Um, Rachel said that every year at Advent, she felt like she was just forced through the story so quickly with the demands of life and family and events that by the end, she had to stop and ask herself, have I really reflected on Jesus coming to earth through this season? And her hope was that we would linger that we wouldn't be rushed through, that we'd have time to actually anticipate Jesus' coming in a way that when we came to Christmas, we'd suddenly go, he's almost here. He's almost here. Jim, in a very Jim way, described it this way. He said, what I want is this. If you've seen Jurassic Park, <laughs> go on, Jim. <laughs> the moment when the water cup starts reverberating from the footsteps of the T-Rex, I want the sermon series to be that that as we read through these passages, we would ask ourselves, who is this who comes to meet us, who comes to save us? Obviously, Jesus is not a T-Rex, so please don't take that metaphor too far. Uh, but that we, as a people, would hear the drumbeat of heaven as God prepares the world for the Messiah who would come to save, that we would anticipate it with everything in our bodies, that we would worship before we even hear the good news again. And that's what we've been doing. That's part of the reason why we're moving so slow is because the goal is to bring us up just to the moment of Jesus' birth and early days of life right before we start Advent, that it's fresh in our minds. Um, and, and it's been brilliant so far. Toby just gave us an incredible introduction to the book and, and helped us to really understand what Luke is doing in this passage and how Luke and Acts work together. Uh, Carol humanized Elizabeth in such a powerful way that you know, just brought her into the room. Uh, Jesse confronted us with how challenging of a time in human history we're talking about right now and, um, and particularly highlighting the unique difficulties faced by young women in this, in this era. And I think this is important because Number one, we are all very distant from the world of this passage. Every one of us. 
um, for varying degrees and varying reasons. We don't live under the thumb of Roman rule in an empire in which our people face an existential crisis. Some of us may have known that. Some of us may come here from that circumstance. And so I'm not saying that to dishonor anyone's story as they're in this room. But the difference is it's a different sort of time and a different sort of rule and a different sort of story. And I don't say that to dishonor anyone in the room, but to say, let the distance confront us as we hear this passage. Don't try to make it a modern story of a, a young mother with an unexpected surprise of a birth. Let it be ancient. Let it be confronting. Let it be different. Hear the dissonance in your mind that says, how could that be? Because, number one, we shouldn't be surprised when we hear this passage. God came into a world that was broken in incredibly dark and painful ways, where the vulnerable and the innocent were mistreated and abused and discarded. That's the world that God entered into when he sent his son. That's the experience of the women he speaks to in this passage. And we cannot sanitize it in such a way that it's just a nice story of people having sort of a Christmas surprise because aren't the holidays so surprising? No, that's not what's happening here. And number two, we have to remember that this, this book, this retelling, this narrative gives us the whispers of salvation, freedom, liberation for the vulnerable and for the world. I think Jesse did an incredible job last week of telling us just how vulnerable Mary was. We can't lose that. But at the same time, we have to say, what is it that Mary speaks to us because of the power of God on her life? One of the things that was a recurring theme in the first couple of weeks was this idea that Luke is not writing a book of theology. And I think that's a really important point, because he's not. He's not trying to write some philosophical treatise on what is God or who is God. But, but, the word theology just means to give an account of God. And we all live a theology that's incredibly important because with every action and reaction, with every way that we respond to others, love others, live for others, live in this world, we give an account of who we truly think God is to those around us. We may think we don't have theology, but when we neglect or when we love, when we create conflict or when we reconcile, these are all theologies lived out in our very beings to those around us. And Mary and Elizabeth and Zechariah, these are theologies being presented because they are revealing what they really think about God in the way they respond in these moments. And so here in this passage, we find something incredible happening. As Jesse mentioned, we have a young woman, incredibly vulnerable in her day, who hears the startling and unexpected news that she will be the mother of the Messiah, of the Son of God. And her response is to say, let it be according to your word. Let it be fulfilled in me. I am your servant. This is supposed to to ring differently than what Zechariah said, because Zechariah is truly supposed to be the servant of the Lord. He is a priest. He shouldn't be surprised by God showing up in God's own temple, and yet his entire reaction seems to say, well, hold on, Gabriel, are you sure? His incredulous, I can't say that word, the fact that he doesn't believe it, there we go, is a marked difference because Gabriel says that Mary believed and that Zechariah didn't that the one who lived every day 
at the footstep of God's house, struggled to believe that a miracle could happen, and the one that, as Jesse said, who was a nobody from Nowheresville living in a hole in the wall, said, I believe you, and I believe the Lord, and let it be for me whatever it will be for my life. And so in this story, the next thing that she does, and it's stunning, she's just found out that she's going to be the mother of the Messiah. Does she walk out in the street and say, okay, got to tell some people, I'm a very big deal, my whole lot in life has changed, I'm the mother of the coming king, yeah, y'all are going to have to pay, going to pay the piper. <laughs> no. The first thing she does is to go to the house of her cousin, who she's just heard, is unexpectedly pregnant at a time in her life where complications would be likely. Not only that, but Elizabeth's husband is mute. And not only mute, but if you follow this text through, it says that when they weren't sure if the name of Elizabeth and Zechariah's baby was John, they had to write it out for John, which means that not only was John mute, but he was likely deaf if they couldn't just say to him, is the name John? Imagine being a woman in a vulnerable state of pregnancy because of the years of your life, living in a society that does not give you agency, and the one person who's supposed to help you in this process cannot hear you or speak to you. And that's where Mary goes. Her whole world has turned upside down, and the first thing she does is she goes to see her cousin, and to help her for months. And by doing this, essentially, lives three months away from her community and will return visibly pregnant. She leaves town and comes back pregnant with the only explanation that I have a miracle baby given to me by God. And as we've seen so far, even the priests are skeptical about whether or not this can happen. But she does it because she lives love. The theology she speaks screams because she cares more for her cousin than she does for her reputation. And as she arrives, something incredible happens. She walks into Elizabeth's house, and Elizabeth starts to speak out the words that God has spoken through Gabriel. Gabriel said, you're highly favored. Elizabeth says, blessed are you among women. Gabriel says, you will conceive and give birth to a son. Elizabeth says, blessed is the child you will bear. Gabriel says, he will be the son of the most high. Elizabeth says, he's the mother of my Lord. This is the mother of my Lord. Mary said, let your word be fulfilled in me. And Elizabeth says, blessed is she who believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. These are not things that she could have heard in advance of this fact. So this is an act of Elizabeth being filled by the Spirit and speaking out the words that God is speaking out into the world, first through Gabriel and then through her. So this is a passage about prophecy. Now, why does that matter? Prophecy literally just means for us to speak out what God is saying. That as he whispers to our hearts, as he speaks to our minds, that we declare that to the world. And 1 Corinthians 14 tells us that we should use that to build up, to give courage, to comfort, or console. But it matters here because it's Elizabeth who's prophesying. The messenger that God chooses to declare the coming of his son is not a priest, is not a king, is not a powerful merchant, but is a woman that society has discarded because she's past her prime, because she can no longer offer children. We should hear the story of Naomi and Ruth where Naomi says, I have nothing to offer you because I can no longer give you sons. Elizabeth, to this point, has not been unable to give anyone sons, and this is who God is speaking through. 
Joel 2, in verses 28 to 29, speaks of a future promise to a broken world and says, and afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young, women, your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Now, I need to say this. In that passage, even on my servants, both men and women, is not some modern attempt to make this an inclusive text. It specifically says in this text, in the ancient language, that the Spirit will be poured out on the men and the women. And that matters in a time when women are discarded and are not given agency, because what God is saying is, I will overturn the power hierarchies of the world to determine who will be spoken through, and I will make seen the unseen, and I will declare forth truth through those who no one has listened to. And through Elizabeth, now we hear a prophetic utterance from the voice of one that no one has cared for. I can't talk about what it means to be a young pregnant woman discarded. I can't tell you what it's like to be viewed as past my prime because I can't bear children. I can't speak to what it's like to be a woman in an ancient world without agency or protection who's forced into choices that she doesn't have much choice in at all. But I can be confronted by the theology of this text. I can be confronted by Elizabeth and Mary, and what I can say is, I don't know that I would have acted as they did. I think Zechariah rings way more familiar to me. As a man who's relied, relied on my privilege and my strength and my power, that's just my story. I'm not putting that on anybody else. But for me, I have always tried to make my way. But that's not the way of the kingdom. Because the way of the kingdom is not about holding up the powerful or the privileged. It's about giving grace to the humble, elevating them, and saying, these are my servants who I will speak through, and I will honor, and I will reveal my power in, because where they are weak, I am strong. I didn't want to preach on this passage, to be honest. When we had the preaching meeting, I fought it the entire meeting. You can ask people in the room. And it was because I felt that I couldn't speak to that. And then when they said, no, we want you to, because for some reason we think that's right, I spent weeks going, why? I'm the wrong person to talk about Elizabeth and Mary. I'm the problem in this scenario. I'm not the answer. But I can say that maybe that's part of the, the thing for today. That I have spent... Part of what's made the last few years hard is it's been a lot of letting go of the power and the privilege that have served me really well so far in my life. That's been my story of being here for school. And so I can say that I have been part of the problem, but I'm thankful that God's answer is not as much through me as it is through people like Elizabeth and Mary. I'm thankful that in God's kingdom, it's not on my strength or some system I've been a part of, but it relies on the power of God who comes into the weak and the lowly and the discarded and the abandoned and says, here I am, watch what I do and watch how my kingdom of peace expands to no end because these are my faithful servants who will not try to change my words by their own strength. Zechariah had to be silenced. But Elizabeth gets to prophesy. Even the mightiest priests are humbled, and the women that no one listens to have agency and have voice. In 1 Corinthians 12, it says something that I think is really important for us as a charismatic community. And by that, I just mean a community that believes that the Spirit moves and, and brings power and hope and prophecy, that the gifts are active in this congregation, community, English language group? I don't know. Anyway, um, 
First Corinthians 12 says this, just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we are all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we are all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. So this is a passage about what it means for the spirit to work in our midst. Now, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not, not for that reason stop belonging, being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, what would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, and the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. It is very easy to become a community of hands or eyes. To think that one type of person or one type of posture or one type of gifting is the most important gift in the body. But when we start doing that, when we start listening to one type of Christian, we have to ask ourselves, who are the ones we think we don't need? Because the ones we think we don't need are the ones that God says are indispensable. This is as much a story about listening to the Spirit as it is about us. And what I mean is this. I think this passage is inviting us as we hear Mary and Elizabeth speaking out the truth of God's grace and hope is that it confronts us to ask, who are we not listening to? Who are we not seeing? It may be ourselves. Who do you think the Spirit won't show up in and through? Is it a particular type of person? Is it a particular age of person? Is it, is it a particular skill? Is it a particular lack of skill in your eyes? At that moment, we have to ask ourselves, where am I missing the Spirit because I can't hear the places he's speaking? A practical example of this. When Jordy was two, he used to speak absolute rubbish, just the most ridiculous things. We'd be walking with him, and he would just start saying random stuff. And we're like, Why? Where are you? what are you on right now? And just at the most unexpected times and the most inconvenient times. And then we started feeling prompted by God that he was actually speaking out something prophetic, which is a weird thing to hear as a parent because you're not sure how that's going to play out. And so I remember we were, in, we're in Los Angeles. We're walking from church back to our car because the, the car park was not in the same location as the building. And as we're walking, this young man who had moved to Los Angeles from Houston and was facing kind of an existential crisis is walking next to us. And Jordy turns to him and starts yelling, car wash, car wash, car wash. And I just felt that, that nudge, nudge of the Holy Spirit where I wanted to say, yes, Jordy, that's great. Car washes are amazing. There were no car washes around. I looked. There's nothing for him to identify as a car wash. Nothing I could easily say, oh, look, he loves car washes. Nothing. And, and I said, I'm really sorry. This is probably going to be incredibly awkward. Sometimes my son says things that I think might be from the Lord. Is a car wash important to you? And he starts sobbing. 
sobbing. And he says, I have been plagued by a dream for months where God shows me a car wash and tells me it's important for my ministry and I don't know what it means. And a few of us got to pray for him and got the interpretation. Okay, all that happened because we stopped and listened to a two-year-old who is honestly just being really aggressive with car wash. (laughs) But we laugh at that because it's easy. Oh, yes, even through the mouths of babes, whatever. But how many times do we move on past someone who we think is annoying or disruptive, who we think shouldn't be speaking, who we think is interrupting, who we think is saying it in the wrong way? And how often do we fail to ask, Spirit, are you speaking through this person something that we need to hear? And how easy is it for us to dismiss the desperation of heaven moving for someone as something emotional or annoying? Hannah, in, at the temple, crying out to God, and the priest saying, are you drunk? What an evil priest. We would never hear someone speaking and saying they're being emotional rather than asking if God was speaking. Oh, wait, we do it all the time. This is the challenge. The big story of the Bible starts with God creating a world that was, he desired to flourish and saying a man and a woman in paradise and asking them to expand that paradise to the ends of the earth and just saying, accept one limitation. One thing I'm asking you not to do. Don't eat this one thing. And they rejected him. Mary had no paradise. Elizabeth had no garden. Neither of them were given the world. But they were asked to do something that many of us, I think, if we were honest, would say, no way. And they said, let it be according to your word and your will. Mary had nothing, and she accepted the most massive limitation, the most overwhelming task, the willingness to be a scandal and to be rejected. And she said, may your word to be, me be fulfilled. And that word fulfilled matters because fulfilled means to be filled out like a balloon. She didn't really know how this was going to play out. I can't stand that song, Mary, Did You Know? Because it's so trite. It's like, Mary, did you just casually think sometimes about, is this kid going to walk on water? What are, what are we doing? What are we doing? I'm sorry, if you love Mary, Did You Know? I apologize. We can argue about it later over coffee. But <laughs> we take this woman who showed courage and strength and faith in the midst of the most ridiculously challenging and horrific circumstances and ask if she was kind of daydreaming along the way. That's my take. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm happy to be convinced otherwise. But I say that to say we miss sometimes that Mary is presented in these six verses, Elizabeth is presented in these six verses as the ones that God speaks through, the one that God moves in, as in dispensable. And what I feel like the Spirit is saying for today is can we be a community that doesn't even unconsciously dispense of people? That says, Spirit, where are you speaking? Is it through the person next to me? Is it through the person that annoys me? Is it through the person that I subconsciously second guess? Can we be a community that says, Spirit, come and speak wherever you will and we will listen? Luke is real. It's a true narrative. It's an eyewitness account. But one of the best things about it is, why do we know that this happened? Why do we know that Elizabeth and Mary had this encounter? They're the only two people in the room, and Zechariah can't hear them or speak. Because someone thought it was important 
to take them at their word, to treat their testimony as valid and their witness as important in a world that didn't accept the testimony of women. And to say this needs to be what people will read for centuries. These small passages matter because every single one speaks the truth about who God is, the one who lifts up the lowly, who says to the ones dispensed, you are precious to me. To says the one abandons, you have a home in my kingdom. To says the, that says to the ones who have known strife and conflict, you can know peace in me. And so what I want to do is this. I'm going to invite the worship uh, team up. I'd like for us to, to stand if you want. You can sit if you want to, or you can stand. Just, just as the worship team starts to play, I just feel like I'm supposed to speak this out over the group. If you feel unseen today, you may be unseen in your context, in your community, in your workplace, but God sees you. And he longs to move in and through you. If you feel like you've been fighting to be seen, I feel like God's saying you don't have to anymore. That you can trust him. That when he sees you, it's better than anyone else seeing you. That you are free to love and to serve, to stop fighting to be noticed because he notices you. He sees every hair on your head. And if you're someone who, if you're honest, is taking people for granted, and I'll be the first to raise my hand there, to invite the Holy Spirit to start opening your eyes to where he is speaking through people that you interact with every single day. The weak and the lowly, the ones that you dispense of, that he longs to make them indispensable in your life. To invite him to move in this community and say, let no person who enters into this room be dispensable but let them be indispensable because at any moment, the Spirit might pour out on them. So I just think there's an invitation to press into that in our hearts and our spirits as the worship team plays. You can do that by singing. You can do that by listening, but let the Spirit minister to you. Whether he's highlighting how precious you are or how much he wants to open your eyes to those around you, let the actions and words of Mary and Elizabeth remind you that no one's left out in God's kingdom. And the ones that we might be tempted to are often the most important.